Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends. My guest today is ace saxophonist and woodwind player Dan Higgins. Dan Higgins is one of the most talented musicians working in Los Angeles. Dan's variety talents on saxophones and woodwinds, making a sought-after session musician in the film, TV and record industry. He has worked on over 700 motion picture scores with many notable composers. Dan performed in the woodwind section of many scores by John Williams. But his big spotlight happened in 2002 when he performed the incredible alto saxophone solos on the Maestro's Academy Award-nominated score for Catch Me If You Can. That score also spun a three-movement concert suite, Escapades for Alto Saxophone and Orchestra, which Dan performed as guest soloist with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, the Chicago Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the New York Philharmonic. conversation, Dan talks about his incredible career and musicianship, and his collaboration with John Williams, including his saxophone solos on Catch Me If You Can, but also his work on The Adventures of Tintin, The Book Thief and the recent Star Wars films. Today I'm very happy and honored to have uh, from Los Angeles at the Legacy of John Williams podcast, Mr. Dan Higgins. Hello, Dan, and thank you for being here today with me. Oh boy, this is a real pleasure to, to meet with you and to speak about one of my favorite composers, John Williams. And I don't know if I can live up to that introduction, but uh, I can uh, hopefully give you some insights into John's work. So I, I look forward to it. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll, we'll share some very interesting uh, stories with you. So basically, I always uh, love to start talking with my guests about their musical background and formation. So how did you end up choosing music as a profession? And did you grow up in a musical household? Yes, uh, both of my parents were, were musicians. And my father was a jazz pianist, but he was uh, drafted in World War II and he went over to France and he was uh, in uh, the Battle of the Bulge. And he was he got shot in the shoulder and he couldn't use the dexterity of his right hand to play so he went on to college and got a master's and doctorate in history american history and my mother was a singer and uh so music was always around the house 
like many people got in a clarinet or an instrument in fifth grade and mine was a, a clarinet and I actually signed up for trumpet and I think my parents uh, thought about that <laughs> the night before I turned my paper in to get a trumpet from school and they said what else did he show you and the band director said oh you could play the clarinet and if you learn the clarinet you might you can go on and learn the saxophone and I go that's, that's pretty cool and I just don't think they wanted a loud instrument in the house so <clears throat> and then I went to and got into high school, was doing well, played in the groups and really enjoying all the, the, the jazz band, the orchestra, the, the band. And I took lessons, but I wasn't really formally trained at any high level. I couldn't really get into a big music school, but I did get into the University of North Texas. And, and I realized at that point that these, these people coming from all around the country, they're the best of the best. And uh, so I had to get on that. And then I started getting really nice teachers and, and, and then wonderment of music opened up for me there. And a lot of it was that I was seeing people of my age actively just absorbed in music and it just stuck with me. So I just went on and got a degree there and then moved to LA. And well, I always say it's sort of like getting in line. Uh, you, you takes years to get the experience level to get really nice jobs. And so I just, I just, started at the bottom and sort of worked my way up nothing nothing flashy and no tricks <laughs> yeah and um basically uh was jazz your your first love in music or 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 was it something that came uh later i mean did you want to become a true jazz pro from the beginning of your career or was that something then that happened along the way well uh, yeah my dad had a great uh collection of jazz records and i listened to him and joy parker and john coltrane and all the great legends. Uh, and it, yeah, I didn't understand much of it, but I was certainly was interested in it. And since Dixieland and uh, Benny Goodman and the swing era used a clarinet, that, that was a nice thing. And I could improvise a little bit. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, I sort of had a kind of like a little bit of a knack for it. And, um, and the saxophone, of course, is, just was great. I mean, it was like when I got my first saxophone, I, I would just stare at it. Because it was just, here's this great instrument. I'm looking at it and I go, this is great. It looks great. I love the way it feels in my hand. And it just spoke to me a little bit. Yeah, jazz, it, it did really interest me. My sisters were like into the Beatles and in that era. Well, they, there was no saxophone or clarinet in the Beatles. So I, it didn't really, yeah, I like the Beatles, but it just didn't speak to me like, like a big band. I played those instruments. So it really has a, you connect when you hear people. And I'm always thrilled to hear from a young player or any player really that heard something that I did that made them in, be interested in music. And you know, speaking of John Williams, I think of the people that <laughs> he's influenced it is off the charts. So what if I could just influence one kid to be inspired to go forward in music? It doesn't even have to be a professional, it doesn't matter. But just that I helped him spark something inside of him is, is wow that's really just a probably one of the greatest honors i get when i do get an email or a phone call from somebody that you know because i had that same thing i'd like to be able to call john coltrane and <clears throat> tell him how much he inspired me but i but it, uh and i i really just think that that was uh really great and it's a different story but everybody usually starts from you know high school junior high whatever band program and they work their way up you don't get into this music, but something like this at age 25, it's a little late. If we think about that generation before your own of the great saxophone players who were studio musicians 
in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and also people that you ended up working with, I mean, Gene Cipriano or Ronnie Lang, you know, was that generation of players an inspiration for you or something that you could look upon to as a role model besides, you know, the jazz greats like, you know, Jerry Mulligan and Sonny Rollins and Lee Konitz and so on? Yeah, I still see Ronnie. He lives just up the street. And uh, I speak with, with Gene Cipriano quite a bit. And yes, uh, well, it's nice to know that people that have the same interests as you have a, have a family, they have a car, a house, they, 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 there's, a, there's a, a pathway. And so the inspiration they're, they're playing is off the charts. And it's like when I work with them for the first time, I go, boy, I've got a long way to go. I'm still there, but maybe I'm like fourth chair or something, fourth woodwind, and you hear Gary Foster, Ronnie Lang play a flute solo and piccolo and then pick up the bass clarinet and then they play a, a jazz tenor solo like Stan Getz or something. And I go, wow, I don't, I'm not good at any of that. But, <laughs> so I, it, it kept encouraging me every time I work with them. It was, um, it was inspirational to keep going and to know that, you know, that there was a, a, a definite path that you're on that has been traveled. It, it's great, but it's, it's risky. So I, I, I was inspired by them, but I was the main thing to get from them <clears throat> other than their wonderful mu musicianship was the respect of the business. They passed that on to me. They respected every day. They showed up early. They were always warmed up. They had the best instruments. They cared that they were working with Henry Mancini or they were working with John Williams. They cared about the process and they didn't just take the money and they, didn't, they, they treated it with really respect. And that's what I really got from them is the, is the respect of the music business in, in Los Angeles. And to this day, they, they, they have that same respect. And that's a part of our history here. And you think of um, uh, Jim Thatcher to come through that great line of French horn players. You, you know, you have to add that to your repertoire or else, you know, you, you probably won't work because you won't believe it. Yeah, those guys were fantastic. And I still work with, with Gene. So it's amazing. He's <clears throat> over 90 and he plays up a storm. fantastic way of, of lineage that you can find in uh, the various generation of great studio musicians. So when did you step up into the studio world? Were, were your first gigs as a studio musician in LA up for film and television or were just, you know, record dates uh, or, or something else? Uh, certainly record dates, jazz records, things like that, that you know, get started and you get a little experience. But television, all, every show had a small orchestra. They needed players. So we'd have four to five woodwind players. So one day you might play the flute, you might play the clarinet or both or a little saxophone or whatever. So it was, it was a little bit of a training ground for movies. Those, those were the finest players and the most experienced. 
so daily I would do a TV show or a, a, a jingle or maybe even a live TV show, an award show, a telethon, or just different things. A lot of those things are, are missing now. And so younger players have to sort of leap. They're, they're missed a training area. And it's like they have a gap because I could show up and if I couldn't play the part, there's four people there, I could, please help me, please, can you play this? Or somebody would pass me something, oh my God, I can't play the flute well today. And okay, I'll cover you. And we we were a team. And you got to see Vince DeRosa on a TV day. Now I knew he knew him, but he would still do TV dates too if he was filling in his schedule. There he is, you know. So you see everybody and you meet everybody. And then it's not only the saxophone or woodwind players that inspire me, it's the pianist or it's it's a composer. The inspiration is all around the room if you want to let it in. It's it's just a, a concert every time I we go there. It's I just love to hear people play and express themselves and then it's like a lesson every day. And it doesn't have to be from another flutist, it could be from a trombonist. a bit of research and I saw that probably your, one of your first gigs with John Williams was uh, Schindler's List. Am I right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I just had a very small part and there was a small a scene where there was, an, I think, an accordion and an alto saxophone and maybe a piano or something in a nightclub. We call it source music if there's a big band or something in the background. Someone else may do that part and they do the score, but John writes everything in his music and it was like really great just to start to feel like, wow, I'm at, it's my favorite studio at Sony and it's my favorite composer. And even though I'm just playing this, it was really nice to get the call. Everybody will get their chance to play in LA and be heard. If you really play well, um, you'll be noticed. So this was a little chance. I mean, uh, I fit the bill. It was a very dated piece, obviously from the forties. So I understood that music and it was easy. For me to do it, I'm certainly, you know, nervous as we all would be, but um, that's good to be a little bit edgy. And um, you know, he and we do it, and then you know that that's it because we're all together. I'm not sure if I would get into music if I saw the way it was crafted today. It's an interactive field, so I'm not sure if that would be as exciting to me to go to college and then to play my own my own part and send it into my teacher or something. No, I want to be with people. Things happen. So that's the attraction. Um, John keeps that alive, but it doesn't happen as much as it could uh, and should. And I'm hoping it turns back because uh, the perfection of how music is recorded today is, is its imperfection. You, if you listen closely to John's 
music which I have and the written arrangements and listen closely with earphones. You'll hear a pencil drop, you'll hear a piece of music shuffled, and he doesn't care, he's going for the performance. You listen to a great jazz record, it kind of blew. That's what's happening in that studio right then. This is not, I didn't fix anything. That that keeps us alive. His his concept keeps us going and it hopefully will rub off a new composers and they'll want to they'll want to get that as opposed to just his skill as a writer they'll want to get the performance because uh, you know ultimately it's sitting on the paper you can go i i wrote a beautiful arrangement yeah it's on paper but it doesn't make any sound and now it's coming from my synthesizer it sounds great yeah not really but so the, the last thing that it's getting is getting kind of left and it's the ultimate thing. I mean, I always equate it to in a sporting event where you only saw one, one player on the soccer field dribbling down and looking like he's going through people or he's making a great move and he scores a goal. But without, the, without anybody else there, it's meaningless. And this is really ties me perfectly to, to catch me if you can, because um, that was really the, the, a big uh, spotlight for you, of course, uh, for your skills, incredible skills as a, as a musician, as a soloist. But I'd like to know how much in advance you got notice from John that you were going to have that huge solo part. I mean, um, did, he, did he tell him before starting to record what, that he needed something maybe different or something special this time around? No, that's uh, kind of not uh, how it worked at the time. No, I didn't even know what the movie was about. I just, I just had to, from the answering service, the books, the dates, to show up at the studio all week with an helpless ex. And so I did. But until I sat down and I saw the music, and I didn't ever see it in front. It doesn't matter. We all sight read well. So um, that's a, um, some people think that you practice, you know, I didn't even know. I was even going to have a solo. I could have been uh, similar to other movies that I had done, like um, Seven Years in Tibet. It's like a sax or something, just like a little color in the orchestra, a little bit of something. It's a nice, uh, but the book Thief he wrote, where I was sort of a little bit of a glue between the French horns and the alto flutes, kind of like a, another color that matched that. That it blends well. Mm -hmm. It blended well, and it helped. Um, help those instruments speak better. That was a very secondary role, but important to John, which is his detail. And um, so I, I don't know, I just showed up and Spielberg was there and, and he was walking around with a camera and we play sort of the main title or something. I go, I'm gonna like this, this is fun. And I didn't, I didn't have any, I could read it, you know, and I just played it and didn't really speak about it. So I had no advance notice and um, doesn't really matter to me, if, if I did, it would probably make me just nervous. Yes, because uh, actually, uh, and I want to ask you, if, because Jim Thatcher, who was there, you know, in the horn section, uh, told me this interesting story that basically you kind of put John out of character for a while because he couldn't believe that you were knocking that solo off, sight reading <laughs> in the first take, and John was kind of, really? <laughs> Well, I, I just I just know that there wasn't a lot of conversation between us about it because I, you know, it's a tribute to his detail and understanding of the instrument. It was great. The music is on the page and with it, it speaks for itself. And I guess it just was easy for me to interpret because it wasn't uh, 
he didn't say, oh, yeah, could you play it like, um, you know, a darker or could you just, I don't really like what I wrote. Can you do something higher? No, it was nothing like that. So very, very particular. And that's what I see with the flutists and other pe people. If you play the part and um, it's going to sound great because he writes well for the instrument. Some people don't really know the instrument, but he always researches any anything. Of course, he has a great history in, in jazz and writing, so there was no problem. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I just I just looked around. And I go, I like this. This is I'm going to have fun this week. That's what I was. And it was like a little concert at the stage every day. I never really gave it much thought because I would do a lot of things similar, coming in and reading or playing. Or we as freelance players would come in and like a Navy SEAL or something, we do the job and we leave. You know, we don't talk with a lot of people. We don't, you know, it was just, it was thrilling. My favorite studio, my favorite composer, and it features the sax. And I, I go, it doesn't get much better than this, you know. <laughs> it was a kind of, a, everything was, uh, everything was wonderful. It's not like you are asked to bring out that level of virtuosity in general in film music. I mean, when you have someone like John Williams, probably yes, but uh, your first reaction when you opened up the book and saw the part, you, you, you said, okay, I have to bring something extra maybe this time around, or maybe I have to be more careful or more, you know, and maybe act a little bit differently, or is it like, you know, I just have to do what is front of me, of course, the best I can do and, and hit the ground running. I mean, yeah, we rehearsed a lot and then and then we make many takes. So every time you play, it, it could be, it's sort of complete takes with him. It's not like we do eight bars and go, that's good. Let's do the next eight and you progress. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a complete concert piece. And uh, there's a, um, it's kind of something that studio players get good at is, is repeating with the same intensity and level, maybe like a great pop singer that every night you go, how can you sing that same song? You know, <laughs> And you see them on Broadway or you see them and you go, they are selling it every night. So we have to do that. And whether whoever has a solo, you're on the spot. So there's a really great energy that comes from that, knowing that this could be it. And it may be the next take, 
or it could have been two takes be before, but you have to play well every time. So I'm always there a little early. So I saw the music and I, I practice a few things that might look tricky, but then we go and then you get to rehearse it. So you get playing chances. Now, now it starts to get into the performance. Uh, it, I think the whole orchestra raises everybody up and, and John allows that to happen. If somebody makes a big mistake, we don't stop. I mean, it would be most, most things, they just go, well, that, somebody dropped a mute or a microphone went bad or something. So we, I guess it's like, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's like the U.S. hockey team or something that beat Russia. Everybody's there from one goal. You know, it's not really about me. It's about that orchestra and that, and that music going down together. I'm just happened to have a little extra. Instead, speaking about style, I mean, the opening number, the, the main title piece is probably the, the most remembered piece, uh, we know, you know, with, with that jazz-inspired vernacular that he used, you know, from the harmonic language, like also, you know, the snapping fingers and the shh sounds from the orchestra. You know, he seems to evoke that late 1950s, early 60s bebop kind of cool jazz world that he probably grew up in but, you know, spiced up in a modern orchestral language, in a way. Did he give you some kind of indication of the flavor or something like that? Maybe some word that he used to describe uh, the piece? Well, not particularly to me. Uh, I, I could see it. And, and I think because I had studied classical saxophone, and that gives you a nice technique. Mm -hmm. And then, I, of course, I was a jazz guy. So I, I understood that. So it was sort of a combining both of those skills. I, I always say that a straight classical saxophone player would sound fine on the score, but it wouldn't be quite right. And a jazz musician only might be a little, a little loose. Not always, but it, it does happen. And so the com having both those skills helped. Uh, he did mention to uh, Alan Estes, the great vibist on it, to play very soft mallets and to be a sort of a shadow a la Ret Norvo, which is an old jazz vibist. And, and when we do concerts, it's funny because he will go to a symphony in um, Boston or New York, or, and he'll want to say Red Norvo to the classical vibe player, but he, he can't really say that because that's, <laughs> they won't know who that is, but he'll just say play soft mallets and uh, shadow the saxophone because your part is secondary. But the vibes, you, you doubling the saxophone is a very subtle color that he used to shadow the sax a little bit, it almost sounds like a little bit of a 
a reverb. And then Alan was across the room because we're separated. I'm, I'm over by the clarinets and he's in back. You, you were sitting in the section. You weren't in front of the orchestra making a concert. Yeah, I sat uh, just to the right of the clarinets and then the French horns are to, behind me. That's just a little hole in an orchestra with only one sax player. So I was just sitting in there. But the percussion is in the back of the room. So <laughs> I mean, we just play and hope it comes out good at the end. But we can hear each other, but it's, it is, we're not exactly together. In concert, we, we play next to each other, but not at the score. And the bass player was across the room and playing in the bass section. But that gives it that uh, it gives it that film score edge as opposed to you want a really you don't want a real kind of jazz trio, and then an orchestra surrounding it. That's a, that's be more like a, a record. And this was a film score, and that's how he records. He goes, "Well, you, well, we want the vibes. That's where you sit, play." It's, <laughs> it's fantastic. There's no excuses, and uh, you follow him. And John doesn't use a, a click track very much, which is a tempo in your ear to keep us together which is very rare because everything is now have to be a right on time perfectly yeah and it's a it that's another advantage he has because the music can flow i've seen him and you could see the streamers on the film go by and i can the film's behind us but i can see the reflection of the streamer in the glass of the control room and it's usually two seconds in front of a major event a car crash or whatever happens, a, a scene change. <clears throat> and I've seen him conduct for two minutes at a slow tempo. And I know at bar 42, that's where the timpani and the, everything happens. And there's a big, the shark comes out of the water, something happens. And um, I see the darn streamer coming across and he's right on it after two minutes. I mean, uh, anybody else would put a click on that and we, we, we'd make it every time, but he's just doing it. And he looks at a clock sometimes and it's just a, it's a total experience and it, it, it knows that he's there. So I've worked with composers that may, may have given uh, their music to orchestrators and they're looking at the score as if it's, they never heard it before. I think it speaks a lot about also his experience as a studio musician when he was a youngster. He, he was playing the piano for, for Harry Mancini and, and, and Bernard Herrmann and Dimitri Tiomkin and people like that. You know, he, he has probably the mentality of the studio musician himself because he comes from the band, like I said many times to, to some of your colleagues. And so he is able to know what he can ask to you guys. And we know that too. We know that he is just like one of us. I mean, I was with uh, a concert with him and Nancy Wilson was on a concert and myself. And he sat down and he played the piano and just did, did a song with Nancy by himself on it as good as it gets. I mean, I didn't know how he was doing that. So he knows, and he knows when to push it, and he knows what we need. Some composers are very maybe standoffish or picky, and some are very friendly. Um, but if you, if you get the feeling that the composer knows what you like to do and what makes you play well, he has a way of uh, 
ordering the music that's being recorded. Many people will pick the hardest thing, like a, the main title right off the bat, and then the orchestra is sort of blown out. But he does a medium piece of music that's maybe later in the film, and then maybe a couple short ones, and then he hits you with a, with a big one. And so we get a sound and we get warmed up and everything. And then he'll taper off and then we'll take a break. And then that process happens again. And it's a great lesson for young composers is the order of the music you record. If you're just trying to get sounds in the room and you have a trumpet solo and over and over, you know, the guy's gonna, it's gonna start to fail slightly. And the energy, I want that first take. I play my best the first time through. It may not be perfect, but it's my best. I put everything in it. And I've, over the years, I've learned to recreate that in my head to make it feel like a first take every time. But before I used to go downhill, I go, wow, I just killed that. And I go, and then I do it again. I go, oh, I kind of made a mistake or that, that didn't out of tune. And then I start going downhill, start second guessing yourself and you go down. So I had, I had to learn how to get out of that. And those guys at Sip and Ronnie, <clears throat> they know that. They go, sounding great, they, they prop you up. And John does that too. Enough of the style again of the score. I mean, the writing make it sound like you are improvising, but but everything is written out, right? So uh, down to the last notes. I mean, is that something challenging for for maybe a jazz a musician that comes from jazz uh, because it's used to a different kind of attitude, or or that was you know part of the of the package, so you understood that completely from the get go. Well, that's a tribute. <clears throat> to John and his great orchestration, he knows that. So that's what he wants. We, we're going to get that every time. If you were improvising, it would be fine too. Uh, it would be okay, but um, it, it would have a different flavor. And he he just likes to write it out. If it's a piano part or a bass line, it's all written out. And uh, we can vary from that a little bit in concert on the bass, especially, but not the sax part because that's it's a piece and. It's a little odd to play something that's supposed to sound improvised when it's written and not make it sound stale because that you lose that thing that you would do if you're if you're really just blowing off the top of your head there's something else that happens but that was that was part of the challenge was to make it sound fresh and new every time yeah absolutely and also it, it makes me think about the fact that uh, as we were saying before you know he he comes from that age of great jazz players that he played alongside with like Shelly Mann or Ronnie Lang, like we said, Pete Candley and all those great. So how much do you think he, he drew from that pool of knowledge? I mean, it sounds very natural and organic in a way, but, you know, how much of, a, of an effort he has to make to, to make it sound so natural? Well, I think it just is, it's in him. It's, he just drew back to one other experience. It's like being a studio player. I used to play in rock bands and, weddings and everything and so and all the pop music of the period and all the saxophone solos or the feeling and when I get on a session and they need that 
I just reached back to that piece of my history. And John has the history of film music at his disposal. So he can reach back and say, yo, you want Bernard Herman? Great, here you go. And he puts his, his touch on it. On Sabrina, there was some beautiful big band music at the parties with Harrison Ford. And, and I really just enjoyed, we had a Zach section and we were playing his idea of what a party would be. And it was him, but it was, it was just like great, great music of that big band era. And he has all that. And I don't, I don't think it's a big effort for him to go back in that, in that era at all. Talking instead of the other big piece of the score, I mean, the father's theme, you know, it's like the emotional centerpiece of the score uh, because it represents, you know, the, the core of the drama of the, of the main character uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. So it's a long line melody with that classic John Williams ornamentation and the harmonic turnarounds, you know, uh, and you're playing it abs absolutely gorgeous because in, in those scenes and also in the extended concert version that John wrote. So again, was there any reference that he used to, you know, to get you in that um, feeling of, you know, kind of loneliness and sadness or was it like, you know, have your go at it? Uh, I did go in the booth a few times, and I, I think we talked about that this was the relationship of the father, and, but it just, the music says it, and you, you can't play that melody uh, happy, and it's always oh, wonderful. It's one of my, my favorite. For the soundtrack record, another beautiful thing he did, um, he didn't just take the soundtrack and throw it on the CD, but the main title would be there, of course, but he says, uh, we had a session maybe two weeks after we finished the movie, he says, I'm going to expand on the father's thing. 
and and that one I did get it. We faxed music at the time, and and I saw that come through, and I, <clears throat> and I look at it, and it was it looked pretty hard, you know, a lot of notes, and I was working a, a lot around that time. I think I was playing mostly flute on stuff, and the fax machine, the paper can fall out, and so I found three pages, and I go, oh. I can make it to three and I go look wait a minute it says page five there were two that fell on the back of the fax machine so (laughs) he knew that that was quite a stamina problem and I went up to him when I first came in that day he goes I go this is uh this is quite a blow he goes oh yeah and I go well I'll do my best and and then again his so sensitive to that we rehearsed and then we made a take or so then we went to lunch so he timed it so that I had an hour. Then we came back and did a couple more. And those those were probably what's on the record. But he knew that that was, you can't just keep beating that. At least for me, that was just, just very little rest in it. And it's just, I want to do my best and cadenza and I want to sound good. And and even the cadenza, it's very typical of a of a cadenza that would be in a French saxophone piece of music. Exactly. Yes. But he did make a little reference. He goes, "Oh, here's a note. If you want to give it a little bit of Cannibal Adder, like a little." And I go, "Man, I love that." Yeah. Anybody that mentions Cannibal Adderley at a at a movie score, I go, "This is I want to be here." You know. But he's very sensitive to all those issues. He wouldn't want to just say, well, we've got to do it again. And what's wrong, you know, or something. And uh, Or I would overdub it, you know, and then we would not have the magic. Most people now, they would do that separate. I go, okay, come on in and just, we'll just get the sax part recorded now. It's just that extra thing. And he he provided that for LA for all these years. And, and Randy Newman, other, other people the same. And it's, wow, what a, what a gift that he's given us to allow that expression to happen.
the three movement concert suite that he prepared uh, after he wrote the score, you know, called the Escapades. You know, it's a really beautiful, it's, it's basically a concerto for, for alto sax and orchestra, you know, and you perform that uh, many times live with him conducting, you know, in Boston, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, and also with Dudamel, with the LA Phil a few years ago. So you then recorded also with John Williams in a Grammy Award winning recording for, for Sony. And John extended even more, I think, the solo part quite a bit. I mean, especially in the third movement, you have a lot to play. of that changes your approach to the piece when you're performing it live or for, for a specific record like you did versus when you're performing for, for the film. Do you try to bring out something different maybe when you're, you're performing it live? Um, well, I mean, it's similar, but it's, it's, uh, it is live so that it, it could float a little bit more. So, and when John's conducting, you know, we, we're, we're together, we have it all together. Dude, Mel conducting. I had, I maybe I would play something a little slower. He was very right on it. He, oh, I'll go slower right there. You know, he was perfect. And uh, he's, a, you know, he studied everything. So I uh, know I, I enjoy playing it live. I, I, I think of the, I get to go to a studio and record a movie. That's kind of what I do. And then I get to play it in concert. I mean, that's like, what a, that's like, this is gift that keeps giving. I mean, this, this is wonderful. I mean, that's very few people get that. It, and it was born out of something that I do, which is film scoring, as opposed to going out and playing with an orchestra with an existing piece or writing my own concerto and going and try to do that. I hear stuff every time he programs different music at those concerts. And, and I, I just love listening to the orchestra and hearing it live is it's thrilling. But I don't really do much different. We did open it up for um, the great bass player, Mike Valerio, and to give him a little extra time in the middle to because the bass is a rather subservient role in the piece, but we have this virtuoso one will give him a little space. So we can we can do a little thing that, and he did orchestrate the second movement difference for this last recording, uh, similar, but he just, you know, he's just always improving.
really a beautiful um, progression and it keeps him going. And to have a concerto out of a score, he's done that on many other scores. He's written pieces that go, that you can play. And it's a, it really is great, but I, I really look forward to doing it all in, in a row like that, you know, and because we recorded that over, say, four days, you know, in and out. And obviously I don't play and everything, but when you get to do that, you, it's one whole beautiful 15 minutes or something of just playing and listen to that sound. Beautiful recording, actually, that one on Sony. I mean, I mean it's uh, also it, it was recorded in Rice Hall, if if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a sorry that it's a different kind of also of sound of environment that uh, that he he gets also from the room. Uh, but basically, I think he's very fond of that piece because he understood that he basically gave the the, the saxophone repertoire a brand new piece that that it's loved by every saxophone player in the world. I mean, many other players tried to, to take a crack on that. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's great. I think, you know, and, and if I get a call from a local orchestra or some less than when John's there, I, I, I just respectfully decline so I can let another player enjoy it. And then people play it on recitals, and I think that's fantastic. It spread spread the wealth around. I'm, you know, it's, a, it's music. It's not, you know, I happen to do it in the score, but it's anybody welcome to do it. And it's fantastic to give that to give that to somebody. Yeah, I've given a couple of lessons with people doing it for their college degrees and they'll come by and want to know how to play it. And can I give them a little insight into maybe make it a little better? But it's yeah, a wonderful, it's a, it's a wonderful way to give back. I mean, with the, the yeah, it does add something that hasn't really been, I mean, there are pieces and it's, yeah, he's, that'll go on. And it's even the, the vibe part is in the orchestral excerpts for symphonies now to get in the symphony part of their oh really of, yes oh, and it's part of something that they you know they'll have an audition you know it's because it's so intricate he had to call that uh, wonderful German percussionist for for that recording on Sony you know Martin Grubinger who to play just that part I <laughs> mean and he came in and we were rehearsing the combo um, just the day before or something we just got together with the three of us and he had it memorized and. And he go, and he just didn't have any music. And he goes, well, I was very impressed. And he played beautifully, and he had a great uh, demeanor about him. And also, 
But I mean, he memorized it. And I go, well, I'm not sure if I want to do that. I've never done that. I, you know, it's part of. You know, that, that's the, the, the mentality of the classical player, the classical yeah, soloist. Yeah, he took it to heart. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going, well, I mean, I'll, I'll play it, but I, I'm afraid to get out there and then make, where am I? You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> to ask you a couple of things about other uh a couple of other projects you did with john and one is uh tintin you played you had a lot to play also on tintin as well right yes that um i might have played some sax but the clarinet uh, i'm pretty good on it clarinet you know it's my first instrument is always my one of my favorite to play i never really got the thing but i think they were trying to get eddie daniels you know obviously it's just with the great go to the top right and I think Eddie couldn't do it or something like that. And uh, anyway, it felt, I, I was booked on saxophone for that movie because there were like three saxes or so, Gary Foster was there, I know. And, and then they just changed the instrumentation and they said, you're playing the clarinet. Okay, so something happened and they had to you know, go down the list a bit and I, I got the nod and, and that was fun too, because that was, uh, again, that was live and that was uh, up-tempo, very precise music. And he wanted it to, have that little old old feel you know with the drums and the bass very very but very precise he was really interested in getting it tight which you know we all want to do that but this piece really demanded that precision so he that was what he was after in that i think we might have done it twice and maybe changed a few people in the rhythm section until we felt we had but it's the kind of thing that if a band played it every night that feeling and here we are, we're separated in the studio a bit, and we, he wanted that. And so we just had to do it a lot to get to, to get it to feel like, well, this is part of the show every night. We've done it for six months, and, and you know everybody's quirk, and you've got the part under your fingers perfectly. And Warren learning the beautiful on the, on the trumpet. That was a wonderful movie and score. 
he had written many different main titles on that for that particular scene. Like we did like three, and some of them were orchestra. And they kept coming back to that little cabaret thing, that we, and so we, he picked that. He wanted that little, the little jazz band at the top. Yes, but it, the music has that kind of a kind of French flavor. You know, sometimes it sounds like Ravel or Milo or you know, it has that kind of 1920s French music uh, feel that probably is very apt because the movie more or less is based on on, on a comic book on a graphic novel from that period from that era. And also, he had a huge piano solo piece for for Gloria Chang that played, you know, like a, like a mini concerto as well. Yeah. He does this, this this great thing that, to all of you guys, musicians, that he suddenly comes out with a huge solo part and say, he, "There you go." It's not happening so much anymore, and and I guess there's you know there's Taxi Driver and and there's Chinatown, that particular the, the Terminal, which is wonderful with Emily Brixton on the clarinet, but that responsibility in film scoring to to lean on one musician or one instrument is rare. And to have be involved with one of those things, in, in, you know, you only uh, hasn't really, I mean, as far as I know, it's like Ronnie Lang and the taxi driver. And then I guess if you can, either, I don't know if there's other scores at Russia houses, a nice Brentford. Oh yes, by Jerry Goldsmith, yes. I was there, I was think I was in the clarinet section though. So oh really? Wow. Yeah, I was in the, I just do the date in the woodwind section or something. And uh, and so it's you know, it's nice to have those moments and to get you know it's your luck of the draw in a way in L.A. There's so many people to choose from. It's nice to have that one moment that you can call your own. And also you have uh, I think a, a pretty big solo in the in the more recent Indiana Jones film. You know that kind of 1940s uh, noir theme that he wrote for for the villain for the female villain. We've done that a few times in concert, like when he's little pieces and again he'll elaborate on it you know <laughs> yeah those are um, those are nice moments Everybody in LA, when a call comes out like Star Wars recently, and with uh, John Williams' name attached to it, everybody kind of gets up. <laughs> If you, I know there's 80 people in LA kind of practicing a little more, and it, he just puts that, you, you just get a feeling, and, and everybody rises up. And so I said, it's, a, it's an experience that many people never had, and it's hard to describe what and a film orchestra like that with those quality of musicians what it feels like. I mean, I'm sure it feels like that with the New York Philharmonic in the concert too. 
but uh, it's when it comes into my little area of recording, it's that's the he's a he's very generous to to share that with us. In one of the Star Wars movies, the the more recent ones, he did that jazz kind of you know Ellington number for 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 a yep. casino scene. You played on that too. Yeah, I played Clarence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a very fun piece. I mean, he sounds like. A, he he also kind of go Brazilian in the moments, and then yeah. he switch back to kind of more jungle style in the sense of Duke Ellington things like that. Once again, all live. There was a synthesizer and some of that to make the bass sound a little bit thing. And he he said, uh, Dan, I want this to sound like an alien is on a planet, nobody around, and he overturns a rock and he finds an old Artie Shaw record. And he listened. So, so I experimented at home with uh, putting my clarinet in a box. I tried to put hang things down inside of it that make rattle while I play to make it sound like a clarinet, but still have a, a, a sort of a alien touch to it. And it's uh, everything I did, it still sounded like a clarinet. It just sounded like I was putting <clears throat> cellophane in there and trying to get something rattling or buzzing or something that would be acoustic and not fake. We came in and I think we had a the guy, the trumpet players had these funny little mutes and uh, they put like a kazoo on the end of the mute. And, you know, everybody was trying to make their instrument sound quirky. Saxophone isn't an instrument featured regularly in film music. I mean, like you said, you have a taxi driver and a few others that comes to mind, uh, you know, save perhaps for the occasional source music piece. Uh, so there is other film work you feel particularly fond of that you did over the years in general? Uh, Benny and June featured the soprano. And it's, uh, Johnny Depp, it's in, that's really kind of cool. Uh, Randy Newman in uh, Awakenings. That was my first movie. And that was, I didn't know anybody. And that's, that's a little bit of a scary story. And I got the call and they said, you got the gig, but they want to hear you play the soprano. So I go, okay, I'll make it. At that time I made a cassette and dropped it off at the studio, just at the front gate, you know, and left and didn't hear anything. And I get there and then I, I get introduced to uh, Randy. And I'd played on a record, I think with Randy, but he wouldn't have remembered. But he goes, oh, I got the tape. And he goes, this is nothing like it. Because I put jazz on there. I put soprano, like Coltrane. I just played big band stuff. And I go, oh, my God. I got kind of scared. And then I looked at the music, and it's it's classical soprano, which I studied, and no problem. But I was 
really nervous and you wait two minutes and you got to come in on a kind of a high note sneaking in. And I could play that today, any day. I just, it just sticks in my mind. And I didn't have a big support system. I didn't know anybody around. Everybody's sounding just ridiculously great. And these are players that I, have, I haven't ever really worked with. They're symphony and they're, uh, that was my moment to, you know, sink or swim because, and, it, and it's a beautiful theme that comes in there. And the flute plays, and, but it features the soprano song. Ralph Grierson, the pianist, was near me, and he is a veteran, and uh, he had played on millions of John's scores as as well as Randy, and so he he came over and just he could see me just like go I don't know what it looks like when you get nervous, but I guess I I fit the bill. He says sounds good, kid, and um, I thought that what we'd make one take and we'd be done. I didn't realize we we're going to make six seven takes, and I got the soul. I I, I didn't have the emotional <laughs> skill to do it. I was hyperventilating. I was selling out every minute, every rehearsal. I was trying to play it at just the most perfect, beautiful. And I started to get kind of nervous. And I felt like I was in the top of the studio looking down at myself. But Ralph called, calmed me down. He says, you know, we're going to be making a lot of takes. So, you know, you know, you can just kind of phone it in a little bit. And then when red light goes on, now you can start to jump. It's going to, it's a process. That was a very important little conversation he had with me right there and then I was then he calmed me down and that was my first movie it's so sweet that uh, you mentioned Ralph because I, I talked with him too and he shared some very lovely and touching stories about his years with John and th this is really touching for me because it speaks about the, the level of artistry you guys bring to, to the music of these great composers who are obviously genius like John like Randy like Jerry Goldsmith or other that we talked about. But the fact that you are the guys who really makes things alive it's, and it seeing this supportive world that you created around and the, the, you know, the support that you gave to each other and the fact that you recognize a great talent that, or maybe the guy that or the lady that that day has his own or her own chance to shine like Emily Bernstein on, on the terminal. I know that it was a kind of a surprise for her, too, when John wrote that big solo. An interesting part of that was that she was diagnosed and she played that score knowing that she had a bad health issue. So that was it. I sat next to her for so many movies. And then she got sick. 
but she had that moment and then it wasn't long after that that she passed so she played that with a different set of emotion than many people might because she goes this this could be it we hope not but she she had that and and it's so joyful to hear her She had a beautiful articulation on the clarinet, and I think he recognized her. She was not; she was in the section, always in the section, and um, and I'd be there, or maybe I was sitting next to her in the clarinet section too. But she stayed after because her, a harpist they had carpooled, and uh, John had an idea to try one other thing on the clarinet, and she just happened to be there still because she was waiting for the harp to do something. And he heard her. And so she was just very quiet in the section, and then he heard her artistry, and then, then she got the big, big film. It was great. It was like, it was like meant to be, I guess, you know, carpool, and you go, ah, oh, you can't go, we got to do a harp overdub, or, or John would want to discuss harp, some kind of concept with the harp or something. So he maybe, he was working with that. And even before we published, he published Catch Me If You Can, he hired me and a piano player for the music to come over to Fox and read it down. And and then that's before this goes to print. How is everything? Okay, so you have to proofread everything, the part. Proofread, and then uh, and and then there was one really hard lick or something, and it was maybe it just doesn't finger well for me. Maybe a hundred sax players could play it, but this one little note that was just awkward for me to get to. And I said, because how is everything there? And I go, if I could just change that one note, <laughs> he did. I go, it's just me, but if you just make, you know, you pick another note. And he asked me at the very intro to that piece, it goes down to a low D concert, which is a, a low B on the alto, which is a little awkward. And the second movement, B-do, 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 and you hit this low note, and I can do it. And he says, you know, just, I know that's awkward. I go, well, I, that's, I can do that easy. That's, I can do that. So I go, leave it in so all the other sax players are have to struggle. <laughs> <laughs> Because he goes, we can change the note here into another note. It doesn't have to be that note. And I go, no, I, I, I want to keep what I can do, but I, if you could just change that other eighth note. <laughs> so every other saxophonist in the world now knows who to thank yeah, for, for that. <laughs> well, well, if you don't have a certain embouchure change and you don't know how to tackle that problem, um, I'm glad to explain it, but uh, it, it just is uh, something that you, you go, uh, it's sort of like a Penny Lane or something, you know, that guy, you know, he played so beautifully. Now every piccolo trumpet player, they have to hit that last high note and miss it. Everybody knows it. So. <laughs>
was a one uh, movie that John did a terrorist plot Munich was the Munich 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 I wasn't in the orchestra playing clarinet or anything like that but I got a call to you know come over to the studio and sax you know and I do and there's nobody there there's like producers Spielberg and all people <laughs> <laughs> I go am I at the right day and so they were filming one of the street scenes in New York and they have you know they have the open mics to kind of catch the car horns and the the city hustle bustle, right? And there was a saxophone player practicing in one of the apartments in New York. And they kind of dug that. So I was there to play like a guy that was maybe college level. They explained it to me. And they, so they, they, now they have the sound effects. They want to put a little of that in there. You probably barely hear it and watch the movie, but they wanted it. <clears throat> and so I, uh, John says, yeah, they listened to the original and the guy's playing some scales and a little bit of kind of rudimentary Charlie Parker. And he goes, sounds like he's chasing the bird. You know, and like, Jason, which is like perfect, yeah, perfect. Here's a composer saying, chasing the bird. Well, of course, everybody's chasing Charlie and the bird. So I played like that guy. And then Spielberg kind of got into it and he started to go, uh, play a little better. And I'm okay. And, <laughs> and then they go, uh, play something like you're on a rooftop, kind of sad, like you broke up with your girlfriend. Or something. Okay, so they people were like, <laughs> it was like darting at you. Yeah, throwing things at you and saying, yeah, oh, I don't know this. what they use, but it was like, uh, you know, sometimes we get called to play poorly, you know, which I find a very, uh, it's a, um, I find it just to be as much of a skill as to play well. You know, I did a Simpsons the other day and the, the Lisa character she's playing, so I play the baritone now. And I played alto and and she, you know, how to play when she didn't play well because she, the guy sabotaged her instrument and how to squawk it, you know. And I take great pride in those little moments of playing poorly. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think uh, John's legacy will be in the future? I mean, 
what do you think will be his place in, in music history and for future generation? Well, you know, he will be known, I mean, you know, for the Raiders and the Star Wars and, you know, the, the, the top things, but the, in the musician's world, he'll be known as, you know, the ultimate film scoring composer and human. It shared that with us. And you know, those movies are fun, but I've seen the other side and the, the depth of the music, which, you know, most people won't ever get that far, but we do. And that's how I'll re always remember him is with, um, with his depth and just, just very cordial and um, just a wonderful supportive musician to, to what has become just a, an industry in, in Los Angeles. So there isn't anybody that can play the saxophone that, that can't have to tip your hat to Charlie Parker. You have to. And this is what this is what he's done. So every composer will always have a bit of John Williams in their music. You know, what a beautiful uh, spirit he is. And um, and and he's he's allowed us to be better musicians. And that's not an easy thing in L.A. with all the big heavy hitters and big egos and everything like that. He 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 lets us crawl up into his spirit and be a guest like we're along for the ride and we put everything aside when we walk in there. There's nobody comes in there thinking he's going to shake the place down and look out for me. That does not happen. Other places, sure. But so that's that's what, that's what we'll remember him for in our, our industry. Yeah. And, and I mean, he's also very he's still going strong. I mean, you know, he's almost 90 now and then he still wants to do new projects and write the new music. And, you know, I, I've heard that even during the, you know, the, the last year, he, he basically spent most of the time writing new, new music. Even he yep. was confined at home, like all of us, but he was really pulling out all, all he can to, to continue to produce uh, new, new music for, for, for all of us. I believe on the last couple of Star Wars, that we've been doing here in LA that he's orchestrated them. So his sketches, I mean, if you ever look at a John Williams sketch, it's wonderful. I mean, it's detailed and it's- It's all there, it yes. So I think the copyists are in the computer, they, they enter everything and he'll, he'll check it through, but there's no need to go to another orchestrator because he's so complete. And, and he's focusing in on those things. Obviously with people doing five movies at a time and TV shows, you know, you need an orchestrator or you'll just run out of time. But that, what a beautiful, thing that he's doing to even to go and to go back to where he started as an orchestrator or something or as a and, and even and not not go well I just compose I get an orchestrator no he's right back in the, the thick of it right you know like a sideman you know yeah he likes the process probably you know he, he likes to really to write and to you know to get out the most of the process he's probably like a scientist in a lab trying you know finding new alchemies Every time I think he feels that way, like, you know, let's find something new. Let's experiment something different this time around. Oh, just like, I mean, the, the subtleties are, you know, that we see in the orchestra. I know that on the, the book thief and he, he they said, can you, you know, can you come over Monday? I go, sure, I can come over. And then I realized that I'm just it's this, this gap between the alto flutes and the French horn, which we talked about. And then um, they said, can you come over Thursday? And I was working somewhere else and I couldn't, they didn't get someone else. I, I I thought it was really nice for me because he goes well if you can't if you can't make it we'll just we won't go because another saxophone player won't understand that what his role might be, and I already knew what it was, and I was just this little classical French horny 
the alto sax does sound like a French horn a little, and then I could add, French horns don't use vibrato, but the alto flutes do, and so I can use a little vibrato and I can send that over to the French horns. And I knew what it was. And this is really simple music, but the refinement of that thought process and the little tiny detail, I'm thrilled. I don't need to play a big solo. I don't need to, you know, scream or play crazy. You know, I, I just, just doing that little job right there was enough to fill me. It seems like Ravel, really, if you think about it, you know, the quality of the orchestration and the level of detail that he puts on that. And this makes me think also about his early days as a jazzman when he was doing arrangements and charts. There is a beautiful record, I don't know if you don't know it, it's called Rhythm Emotion. His old arrangements that he did uh, for, for big band, basically, but he also uh, puts in a French horn as well into the, the mix. It's, of course, the school of uh, Thornhill or Gil Evans and so on, but but it's amazing. I mean, those arrangements are, I mean, utterly fantastic. <laughs> Some of that stuff is, you know, just you think it's, uh, how, how does he do that? And I remember going to a lecture and he talked, I said, what are you working on? He goes, oh, the next Star Wars. And, and I'm just in there by myself. And he says, composing is a solitary act. And he goes, and it must be. Because you get, now you have teams of writers and demos. and But it's him and, and his writing with music paper. That's And I was great because he said it must be. It was like a, a stern warning, you know must be it because that's the mind it is it's him he doesn't dole out responsibility we always say when we work with john and i know exactly what they mean is that everybody in the orchestra thinks he's only listening to them so if you're the third french horn you feel that he's only 
listening to you, to you. <laughs> because it's so important and the voicing and the balance and if you play the bass clarinet or something it's really it is true he makes you think and he he may be listening to everybody with that but many times you go oh, it doesn't matter if i come in who cares and i'm going to change my read here or something and you don't even play no oh, that's great we're moving on but with him you get the feeling like every note matters and if it's not there it would change the shape of the music that's really detailed. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's scary, but it also speaks volumes about you know, the level of uh, of detail and, and artistry that he puts in everything that he, he writes. And imagine and, being a piano player on the day, like Randy Kerber or Gloria. And you know that he knows every pedal, everything. He could play it. Dan, I, I don't want to, to get too much of your time. You're being so generous with me. And, you know, I, and we didn't even go into your absolutely amazing jazz career. I mean, you played on uh, so many records with so many greats, with so many artists. And I suggest all the listeners to go on YouTube and just type Dan Higgins saxophone and get lost into a rabbit hole of absolutely gorgeous music. I mean, I, I just love it, for example, the... The solo that you played for Quincy Joe's for Winter Sands piece, it's, it's you know, it's mind blowing. That one was, uh, I played on the record. And then Quincy was going to put some soloists on other players, maybe big names, big stars. And uh, they were mixing. And he didn't really like whoever he got, I, I don't know. Um, it, it didn't have the Phil Woods kind of quality that he was used to. And so I had played it at one of the rehearsals, just to read it down, I played it. And so they, they went and listened to that take and they go, let's get him in here. It was all mixed, except for the sex. I came in and a capital and I did a stool and a mic and, a, and I just played it down. I think I played it one take and it was, sounded so good. It was already mixed. The headphone mix was beautiful and they got a nice sax sound on it. And I go, and here we go. And I knew it kind of because I spent a great piece of jazz history with Phil Woods. And so it was just like, there we go. And and so it wasn't meant, well, I wasn't supposed to do it, but then because I had played it and he goes, well, let's get Dan back here. And so it was nice. Thank you very much for the time that you 
spent with me and with uh, our listeners. I'm really looking forward to, to hear from you again in the future, actually. I hope you, once all this uh, pandemic will be over and then you can start again making beautiful music with John and with the other greats that are still around with us. Well, thank you so much for having me and uh, everybody uh, listening, everybody be safe and smart and get through this and we'll, <laughs> we'll live to see another day in the music world soon. Bless you. Thank you very much for staying with me today. All right. Thank you. Thanks to Dan Higgins for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles and interviews. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast. Mm-hmm.